0: You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. You are listening to a special edition of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast recording from the Civil War Institute Summer Conference at Gettysburg College. Uh, My first guest is Dr. Judith Giesberg. Judith is a professor at Villanova uh, and author of several books. Uh, she just delivered a very interesting uh, presentation uh, based on her book, Sex in the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality. Uh, Dr. Giesberg, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: before we talk about your book, um, something that you, you mentioned at the end of your presentation about how we cover uh, Civil War history and for years and years most of the history seemed to surround battles and military tactics and great military leaders mm-hmm. um of course that's part of it um mm-hmm. but what what do you bring to the table i mean there's a gender uh perspective here in your book mm-hmm. uh there's a little atlantic history mm-hmm. in your book mm-hmm. um what what does that bring to the table
1: so i s- I want to start by saying that the military history stays central to the way we understand this conflict, what we read, what we teach. It's obviously still a very central part of this narrative, and I don't think that uh, it should ever be anything other than that. I do think that there's an important way that we always need to be thinking about how contributing, you know, or how studying war and writing about war what that means ethically and morally at a time when we are at war and and in my lifetime suddenly a war that doesn't ever doesn't have a distinct beginning right. or a distinct end so i do think it's 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 important for us anybody i think not just a civil war but anybody who studies a war to think about the implications of um, you know, of of in, of, of, of n- not exploiting, but sort of you know, think, um, driving people's love of war, and and just sort of the way we write about it as it being appealing, and 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 it should be, it, it you know, it, it, it our writing should attract people to study the war and its causes and its effects. Um, and those are all important, all of that together. But if we sort of separate out just the sort of let's make this war appealing and how do we make this war appealing, we do that with our language. We, we do that the way we describe things. And, and, and those, um, you know, that, that can and should be part of our conversation about what are the effects of that. Do we, you know, how do we contribute to this love of war? And, and what part, if any, and I don't know the answer to that, do we play in this moment that we're in when we are really, in my lifetime now, suddenly at a perpetual war. Like, not, I can't remember the time when we weren't
0: right, right. at war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we mm-hmm. have
1: to think about that, all of us, people who write about it, people who read about it. And, and part of the way that I try to do that with this book is to think about the gendered terms that we use to describe battlefields, Um, and that, you know, is, I think Gelzo says that in his, Alan Gelzo says that in one of his books that, you know, that this is, I know this language, this language is, he even talks about it as being sort of pornographic. Um, so I do think we should be thinking about that and critiquing it and looking around us for ways that we can engage in that conversation.
0: Well, and your book does just that. I mean, you, you, you take us into, uh, the camps and, um, what soldiers are doing, um, when they're not fighting, uh, and when they're longing for home, um, they are uh, distributing and, and, and looking at um, uh, obscene materials, uh, pornography. Uh, can you tell us a little, bit, a little bit about what they were looking at, what these materials were, um, and how widespread it was uh, in the case? Sure.
1: Camps? Yeah, sure. So the first thing to keep in mind is that it's really hard to find this stuff. It's not collected in personal papers. Archives haven't thought to keep the stuff or to right, to, to um, add it to their list of acquisitions or aspirations. When I first started this project, I looked high and low and talked to every archivist I knew, and everybody shrugged their shoulders and said, well, we don't have it. It's not here. I don't know where you'd find it. Um, so it, it and that's... An aftereffect of of the Comstock laws and the prosecution of this stuff, and nobody wanted it. It was too hot to handle and too dangerous to be part of it. So, uh, so what I found at the beginning were descriptions of what the men read and what they looked at and the stuff that was being sold to them. That's what I found to start. Was just a, you know, and, and I found people describing uh, materials and in, in their concerns about the men. Uh, So materials they have, as you can imagine, are going to be more sort of readily um, understood or or the variety of them once they start to prohibit materials. So carte de visite, right, uh, that were mass produced and easily pocketed, right, and shared, uh, they, they're, um, you know, that the, these were sort of, you know, one image reproduced many times that you could get and hold and pass around. Uh, but there were also stereographs that you require, you know, that, that weren't as easily sort of passed around between the men. But you, were, you know, you needed to have a the viewer to look through them. Uh, they were, um, you know, just body books like Fanny Hill that I talked about in the talk today, or other books, lots of other books that were available for them to read or to read out loud, you know, to read to one another.
0: Right, so we've got drawings, we've got pictures, yeah. and we have just words that that are deemed um,
1: mm-hmm. body or right. erotic right. or salacious or right mm-hmm. and
0: um what are some of the concerns I think some some of them seem obvious, but mm-hmm. uh, during the war, what are the concerns uh, with these materials being so widespread uh, and how does the, how do those concerns shift after the war so that
1: surprisingly in the conversations about this so there's an 1865 law that I talk about in the book surprisingly they don't actually articulate what their precise concerns are about the effects of this stuff they just you know the fact that they know from their own sons or right friends of right their sons or whatever that the stuff is there is enough for congressmen to say and they don't actually describe what it is either they just say the stuff is there it's bad it's, it's it, it could hurt the war effort again not because they sort of t- articulate what it is and it's like the sort of you know we know that those 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 theories about the sort of balance of the humors are out there right that you know that every that health is about balancing all the fluids in your body and they're, that stuff is there but they're not actually articulating those concerns at all they just sort of noting that the stuff is there and these mixed audiences of or you know that men enlisted men and officers are mixing the stuff up um, is enough to concern them, um, and and that they pass the measure. But the measure doesn't go anywhere, um, and when we see in the court martial proceedings, is um, you know uh, that there is a blurring of rank, and and, 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 and you know, and uh, the men could easily sort of observe and watch. Officers and and use this information against them, and there was kind of a and I talk about this in the book that there was kind of a, a, a set of rules that were set by that wouldn't have been sort of uh, um, that that we sort of associate with working class people or sort of people who are not in the elite and who are not necessarily officers uh, that sometimes prevail. So there's a you know there's a mixing of that. These officers sometimes get off like Pierce gets off pretty easy for being a really bad soldier at, at times. Um, uh, but at other times, the way it works, you know, uh, in the camps, that it's not always that clear. So there is a mixing of that. And in some ways, it allows these, these people who are in the ranks to exercise some authority over the men, you know, who are supposed to be commanding them.
0: Right. There's a scene in your book where I believe it's an officer or colonel. I mean, it might, it might have been Pierce yeah. who is reading to, uh-huh. to, to the men. Yeah. You also made the point that these uh, materials can be taken in by any any social class of, of, of uh soldier, um people who can read. Um so it it uh was a social leveler as you say in your book. Mm-hmm. Um what happens well actually first we should get to um uh, briefly Anthony Comstock. Who who was he? Um his his brother was killed here at Gettysburg mm-hmm. and I think he as you said in your your talk he felt some duty to, to enlist. Um in a lot of ways, he seems to fall short of his own moral standards, um, which so often seems to be the case when you have somebody who becomes a um, uh, crusader. Exactly. Uh, who, who was Comstock, and uh, what did he what did he do after the war?
1: So Comstock is, comes in, as you said, to the war, joining his brother's regiment after he dies here in Gettysburg, and. Um, when his regiment is increasingly not in active duty anymore, they're not, he's not going to see a lot of, he's not going to see any action, um, when he joins the army, um, you know, on the battlefield, he really is mostly drilling and on guard duty is really what he's, he, he does. There's not a whole lot going on for the 17th at the time that he joins, uh, the regiment. Um, and... But he also, but he writes a lot in his diary about, and, and as all men do, or in their 20s, some of whom are away from home for the, a lot of whom are away from home for the first time. He, t- he has to figure out what he thinks about things and what he feels about things, and 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 you know he writes those in his diary. So probably like a lot of 20 20 year olds who are away from home, he talks about his sexual urges and what he's supposed to do about them. What's the right response and, and and for him it's you know that you need to restrain them and and that's his main occupation at least in his diary we don't know what's going on beyond his diary he doesn't ever um, he doesn't ever fall he doesn't there's no disciplinary action ever taken that I can tell any record of within the 17th involving him uh, but he's very concerned about everybody else not only about his you know his own sort of ability to control these things but what he sees around him is everybody not and what that effect is having on him. He becomes the sort of penultimate, you know, soldier in danger because the stuff is there. Um, And that, he takes that sense that his, that he was a victim of this stuff, right? That he was surrounded by sin and sinning boys into the post-war era where he's the rest of his life going to try to save boys from themselves. Um, And he's the central character in that drama. that he you know he was he wrestled with it during the war and then after the war his job or he believes is he's a self-appointed sort of uh, champion of these boys who he's going to save from themselves and of course, it's never. I mean, his language is always about. Sometimes his language is neutral, but it's about young men being saved from themselves. But of course, as you know, the Comstock laws become very broad, and they're not really effective ever at controlling men's sexuality. But they become incredibly successful at controlling women's.
0: Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? I yeah. mean, that, the so uh, the Comstock laws uh, uh, go into place, and um, there's they. They sort of get they get tied into one of the the sort of um, uh, more interesting points in your book, not just pornography, pornography gets it it sort of becomes anti-abortion, anti-birth control. Mm -hmm. And uh, you argue takes us really into the modern times in terms of um, uh, people crusading against things like this. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So I think there's a there's a central question that's at the heart of this book is what do Americans decide is a you know a, a union and a nation and a moral nation in the aftermath of the war um, and of course the you know the federal government seems very um, you know, licensed to dictate this at the end of the war, right? That, you know, that sort of riding high on this notion that we've fixed certain problems like slavery. We fixed that, done that, check that off the list. Now, of course, we need to look at polygamy. That's a really bad thing, right? We need to figure out how we're going to sort of m- not just put the nation back together, but make that nation moral, Um, So this is, you know, a heyday for a lot of these conversations about what makes a nation, what makes that nation moral, and that Comstock law is folded into that, you know, folded into that bigger conversation, and at the state level those comstock laws and the conversations about them become wider discussions somewhat wider again it's never a big public thing like people aren't sort of coming to town hall meetings saying you need to stop this stuff from coming to my house but 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 among congressmen some of them who are veterans and doctors sort of then join in that conversation at the state level and say well since we're on the subject of obscenity let's talk about things like birth control people who advertise birth control people who talk about birth control they are all guilty of obscenity and and publishing obscenity and mailing it through you know sending it through the us mails let's those are the same people who are also providing abortion services they're not regularly trained medical practitioners now of course we you know we have this sort of amped up sense among medical doc about a, a medical community that they are the real doctors other people are not the real doctors and that all becomes part of this conversation that produces these state laws that outlaw all these things like Again, talking about birth control, providing abortion, all of that gets gets added as riders onto these Comstock measures, local Comstock measures that are about um, morally morality and how we can sort of um, police that morality. And we and like you said, we live with those stuff. We we stu- we we have lots of you know we have lo- lots of Supreme Court cases and lots of measures that have been passed since those Comstock laws, but I don't think we've ever really rooted them out. uh, about the way we think of ourselves as a nation um, and what makes us moral, makes us unique.
0: Right. I I mean, you have the uh, one that just comes to mind, the comic book scare of the 1950s where uh, uh, New York State um, tried to ban comic books because they thought that uh, certain comic books because they thought they inspired murders in Brooklyn. Um, you know, it, it, it's endless, really, the, it the, you know, um, this sort of, uh, it's an interesting way to look at it. The federal government felt empowered by what they had accomplished in the Civil War and was in a perfect position to now um, sort of take on all the other vices that were that were out there. Of course, prohibition comes uh, mm-hmm. a, a little bit later. Um, And in your book, you sort of talk about this in the context of, I know you already covered this, but just to put a fine point on it, uh, the gender hierarchy, that uh, the war, as wars always do, uh, sort of upset sort of this social uh, hierarchy that exists, the gender hierarchy, and the Comstock laws sort of fit in as the, we need to reclaim this uh, sort of uh, social ground we used to stand on, and they they indeed did. Um, So... uh, uh, Dr. Giesberg, uh, I want to thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this. I know it's been a busy conference, um, and uh, any of the background noise y- you've heard, we're in the middle of uh, the uh, Jager Center on Gettysburg campus. So I want to thank uh, the Gettysburg campus and the Civil War Institute for allowing me to set up. And uh, with that, thank you very much, Dr. Giesberg. Oh, thank you. Thank you. My next guest on this special Gettysburg edition of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast is Dr. Susanna Ural. yes, I got it right. Uh, Susanna is a professor at the University of Southern Mississippi, who has authored several books, including the one she's here to talk to us about: Hood's Texas Brigade, the soldiers and families of the Confederacy's, Confederacy's most celebrated unit. Susanna, thank you for joining me.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Susanna, the sort of um, the great thing about your book is what uh, you said last night that you are blending military history with the home front. And uh, when you do that, you get a much, uh, a, a much better picture of who these men were. Of course, when we think of the Texas Brigade, we think of elite soldiers. But you take us back to Texas and tell us who they were. Um, can you tell us uh, what kind of people were, were these, what social class did they come from, and how did their experience in Texas Uh, define them later during the war?
2: Sure, Um, it's a good question. So uh, breaking that down just a little bit, these tended to be men who came from wealthier households, wealthier families than your average Confederate soldier. So if you look at just the Texas regiments, uh, two-thirds of the Texas regimental officers came from slave-holding families, one-third of the Texas privates did. So that is going to show you, you know, the wealth that a lot of these folks enjoyed. Um the fact that they are early enlistees um, who choose to serve a 1,000 miles from home speaks also to their ideological drive to be in this war. So these tended to be men coming from families who would be very much affected by Republican Party policies to limit the extension of slavery or perhaps to abolish it. They came from households who could really sustain themselves in the men's absence you have privates who maybe you know they're a farmer and they're going to leave a wife with two young children that family's going to have a harder time than a lot of the other families in the brigade but what I found was that the brigade families really took care of each other too so they're able to sustain at home themselves while the men are at at, at war serving so they really came from these households that could sustain the level of sacrifice that the men made the men themselves were ideologically driven enough, as were a number of their families, to also withstand the pressures of war, right? So, for example, when you look at a unit like the Texas Brigade, that is their experience is the flip of casualties. They actually suffer more two-to-one ratio of combat deaths to disease as opposed to the opposite for most soldiers. Again, they can sustain that from the ideological drive and the financial stability kind of overall within the brigade.
0: Right. Um what What is the discussion in Texas? Um, of course, th- these were men who were eager to fight, most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to complicate it a little bit, uh, and you get into it in your book, there are some uh, differing views on secession uh, right before the war. I think you've got uh, uh, Sam Houston sort of on one side, the former governor, and Lewis Wigfall, who's just this uh, very interesting character. Uh, of the fire eater. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The fire eater's fire eater. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the majority of the guys came from households that early on supported secession. But by no means did all of them. Um, you know, you've got, um, there's a guy by the name of Fletcher, William Fletcher whose father was just not keen on secession, you know, basically making the Sam Houston argument of, what is this going to get us? Um, You know, if you've ever read anything about Sam Houston, right? I mean, those guys were, you don't break apart, you go conquer more, right? I mean, this secession, come on. But, I mean, the, the majority of the guys really did either come from families who early on supported it or once secession came, once Fort Sumter reinforced it, they were out, they were done. Um, because again, that's often to me the interest in studying military history. We, we, you, and I can philosophically disagree about something, but when it comes to a matter of well, you're either going to be with me or against me, because now we're at war with each other. It becomes very crystallizing in understanding kind of exactly where these people stood, right. um, and for the majority of them in the unit, it was secession.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic of the the, the, the dynamic within their units? I mean, they they, they were unique in in many ways, in, including. Uh, how they, they were able to select some of their officers. Um, can you talk a little bit about yeah, that?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the Confederacy Confederacy has this interesting situation where a lot of the men who volunteer think they're going to be able to elect their officers, certainly up to regimental command. And the Confederacy basically allows them to, in many cases, select company-level commanders, but y- you're not going to elect. We're going to sign your regimental commanders. Well, once the draft comes for the Confederacy, one of the ways to kind of offset that that the view of the draft, that really is kind of this infringement on their rights, right? That the government would force a Southern man to serve. And then you get the exemptions that come with the Confederate draft. Well, one of the ways the Confederate government makes makes that a little more palatable was, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and let you elect some, some of your officers again. You guys can do that. So the men liked that. Um, and they really genuinely didn't like any kind of restriction on their choices. And it's, it's to me, it was one of the most enjoyable parts of the book was then studying well, then who can command these men? I mean, it's a fascinating lesson in leadership of being able to bring together and convince such independent men and and, and who can be incredibly inconsistent, right? They'll call themselves gentlemen, and then they'll be saved let's just say ungentlemanly right and so right. you know they they're they're like anybody they can be fairly inconsistent they're very independent minded they're constantly aware and expressing their constitutional rights so what kind of a leader can bring those guys together in a disciplined way to be an effective military unit but also give them the freedom to continue to make them effective and motivated um and so it was, just, it was just fun studying the commanders themselves who could do that.
0: Uh, and, and uh, you know, you, you said, depending on your perspective last night, either cocky or, you know, confident. Um, mm-hmm. a, and either cocky or confident enough to sort of even take on, I think, Jeff Davis at one point who uh, says, no, I am going to select your higher officers. Mm-hmm. And they said... Um, I mean uh, I don't think they uh, Jeff Davis ended up selecting their their higher officers correct I mean Oh
2: no he he selects the regimental commanders um, right. absolutely and they'll do petitions against them right. if if you know John Marshall the 4th Texas is uh, ready to have petitions sent to Jefferson Davis when they go into the battle of uh, Gaines Mill and Marshall ends up dying in combat and somebody asked me one time if I thought they fragged him I was like no I mean there was there were enough balls flying around that nobody needed right. to frag anybody right. I mean it was it was heavy fighting but yeah I mean they um you have they, they this is a unit and and look i mean you see this in military units all the time right a good commander has it's, it's, it's always a power exchange you can see it in business leadership it's, it's always a power exchange i'm going to relinquish some of my power to you once i decide that you are worthy of that kind of trust but getting these incredibly independent men to function you know t- to uh, operate, fight in line, volley fire, the incredible discipline you need in a military unit, to find men who could do that was absolutely fascinating. And usually what ended up happening later into the war is that their regimental commanders worked their way up through the unit. So while the men didn't necessarily choose them, they had earned the respect of the men at the company level on up. So it kind of worked its way out.
0: And you talk a little bit about that they Mm -hmm. they were given so much sort of Well, they police themselves in a lot of ways in Mm -hmm. camp. You know, if if somebody got out of line uh, in a way that didn't sit well with the regular soldiers of the the brigade, they took care of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, They go through a couple of commanders, uh, and then John Bell Hood uh, Mm -hmm. takes command. Can you talk a little bit about why John Bell Hood, at least initially, was such a good fit for the Texas Brigade?
2: I think it helped that he had served in Texas before the war, right? So they, they're, they're calling him a Texian, even though he's a Kentuckian. But, you know, most of these guys aren't Texas born, right? right? So they see John Bell Hood as one of their own very, very early on. Um, I think the other reason they tagged to Hood so quickly, though, it is he has that calm confidence about him. There's this great moment at the Battle of Gaines Mill. This is their first big battle together, right? John Bell Hood's the brigade commander, and he he, he leads off the battle from in front of the 4th Texas as a old regiment. Um, they get across Boson's Creek. They're up at the heights. They've driven Federals out of those heights, but it's not. the fighting is still fairly hot. And John Bell Hood, they describe, is just kind of standing there, kind of leaning against a tree, basically. And that kind of calm confidence, right, where you don't have to say anything. You don't have to demonstrate why you should be respected. He had that about him, but he also knew when, no, you guys aren't going to police yourself. I'm going to police right, you. Right, right. Um, he knew when to do that, and he knew when to be like, all right, let him go blow off some steam for a while. So it was kind of those combination of factors, um, and they just adored him, including you know long after the war when nobody adored John Bell right. Hood. Uh, <laughs> right. They still stayed loyal to him.
0: Um, you, you mentioned the Battle of Gaines Mills, which I think is what... Uh, rises, uh, uh, raises them to this elite level. I mean, they, they are seen after Gaines Mills as literally saving Richmond. I mean, is, that's not an exaggeration, right? I mean, they, they...
2: No, I mean, now look, there were a few other units that needed this credit, <laughs> right. right? Just like at the Wilderness, you know, there might have been some other guys who, you know, helped out just a wee little bit. Um, but... No, I mean, this is, you know, when Stonewall Jackson, as a good Presbyterian, you know, barely praises anybody, but he refers to you know, the position where the Texans fought at Gaines Mill as, you know, the men who, what is it, the men who fought here were soldiers indeed, right, it was, which is about as praiseworthy as Stonewall Jackson's ever going to get. It says something, yeah. I mean, they were, they, they were definitely recognized. They could have lost that reputation at that point if they didn't make, right, keep going with that. But, but that's also what makes them an elite unit is that year after year— casualties all the other factors that can break a unit they keep going i'm mean, gonna and it's, it's truly amazing uh
0: and and this i think also helps um forge this uh special relationship they have with robert e lee and robert e lee says glowing things about them and i i yeah i wrote down some of the quotes but basically that the, the texans will always move them uh yeah. kind, of, kind of stuff um just shifting for a second um the Emancipation Proclamation and th- this is a this sort of a, a point in another direction but they react to the Emancipation Proclamation it's a little bit they they're different than a lot of other Confederates um, and they sort of uh, again the confidence or cockiness they oh, we don't care you know we're gonna win this war anyway it's not gonna matter and they also um, there's there's this idea that they know a lot of soldiers in the Union Army they've captured them they've talked to them they think that the Union Army is not ready to fight a war over slavery, and that also might, um, that, that, that that actually might work in their favor. Can you talk a little bit about, I know it's not as much about the Texas Brigade, but I think yeah. it's an important point.
2: Yeah, I mean, no, I think, um, I think they were aware of divisions in the North on the, on the issue of emancipation, but, and, and I think for your, okay. this this can break down at a couple of different angles here for the texas brigade they didn't really care that much what northerners thought about it um they weren't going to lose this war one of the reasons the south wasn't going to lose the war was because they had the texas brigade so and you know this they they believed you know the god's on their side they believe it's a just cause they use the references to the american revolution and all of this so there's that for your average white southerner though the emancipation Proclamation is very concerning um, and you know what is this going to do to security on the home front? We're going to have slave insurrections. Um, it is it is very very troubling. Some of the comforting reassurance that will come to the White South is the idea that Northerners are not necessarily happy about this either. Right. But within, if you so I was trying to look for all of this in the Texas Brigade letters. Right. So where where do they break down on this? And that was one of the things that really surprised me about the men was that. What other people worried about, they didn't worry about as much. It's, it's this very, um, by no means are they simpletons, but they have this very calm assurance in themselves, in the cause, in their commanders, and they're going to win. And it's, it's one of those almost like if, everybody, if anybody ever tells you sometimes, you know, you're overthinking this, that would have been one of their lines. They're just It's going to be okay. We got this.
0: My favorite part of your presentation last night was um, – you talked about the Texans who did make it back home after the war and uh, one particular, I forget his name, but uh, he was a doctor and uh, essentially a doctor of the entire army of Northern Virginia. And when he, uh, I think, tries to seek employment in a, in a newspaper article, he doesn't even mention that. Mm-hmm. He only mentions that he is uh, was a member of the Texas Brigade or at least known by them. Mm-hmm. Uh, just being known by them was, uh, was enough. Um, can you talk about uh, what life was like when they returned home and uh, the, the difference uh, between their post-war experience and your, re- your typical mm-hmm. uh, Confederate soldier.
2: Right, absolutely. So when the Texas Brigade gets home, I mean, there's about 600-some guys left in the brigade, 675 I think it is, when they surrender at Appomattox. I mean, they're, they're smaller than a regiment. Um, when they make their way home, it takes most of them about two months to get there. And Texas is by no means as devastated as Mississippi or Virginia or the Carolinas, but for the Texas Brigade family, so much of their money had been tied up in, in slaves, in particular or in land, which maybe some of them can't work now without enslaved labor. Um, it's, it's massive financial losses for them. If you look at them in the 1860 census and you look at their wealth by the 1870 census. But what you see them doing is maintaining their ties as a brigade. I mean, that's why I called the post-war chapter Waging Peace. I mean, they never really stop waging their lives as a brigade. Um, you know, they can't see all the guys all the time, but, I mean, a lot of these guys serve with brothers. They have friends on neighboring farms. They were all in the same company together. They maintain those ties, and they support each other in the post-war period, just like they did in the war. So, like you said, when Dr. Breckenridge opens his practice in Houston— it's not that he was the chief medical examiner of the Army of Northern Virginia, which is a heck of a credential. It's that, you know, the old Texas boys know him. Right, and right. He, so he's okay. He's <laughs> good people, right? So some of them, they suffer significant losses, but by supporting each other, and I don't even necessarily mean in terms of money, but by vouching for each other. This is a good man. He was a loyal man in the war. He fought. He sacrificed. You need some, you know, whatever. You need some corn, go get it from him. You need to buy a hog, go get it from him. You, you need to get an education, you know, so-and-so just opened a night school, right? It's 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 what we all discover in life. Part of it is how well you work, what kind of educa- education you have, and part of it is who you know. Who you know. Yeah. Right? I work and in politics, they, they, so I know very well about that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And th- they, they know that. Right. Um, and that's, but, I mean, they are not happy um, about their lives. They, um some of them, Bill Fletcher, um, works very well with the African American population around Lufkin, Texas. Um, but a lot of them, I don't find a ton of them in the Klan, um, but that would be difficult to find, period. I definitely found some examples. But I mean, I don't, I don't see a lot of them getting involved in an incredible amount of violence as much as they just disagreed with the idea of black male suffrage. They, they thought society should be run by whites. I mean, they're very much 19th century patriarchs. So they were not happy by any stretch with the changes that the war brought. Uh,
0: on average, duh, I mean, even though there is a lot of suffering to go on in the South after mm. after the war, they do better uh, they th- do, th- yeah. than your, your so, average.
2: Yeah, so what I wanted to do, and by no means am I a statistics person, but I really wanted to break this down of, okay, let me find their households in 1860 and find their households in 1870. And so I did a random 10% sample of the survivors of the 3rd Arkansas and the three Texas regiments and I just kind of took them and studied them, and I and I compensated for the fact that you know some of the guys were in their parents' households in 1860, so of course they're probably not as wealthy as their father by 1870. So I looked at their father by 1870, compensated for that, and overall, Hood's Texas Brigade families were doing better than everybody else in their county um, because again, I argue that they had maintained those ties, those networks. Right.
0: Is there a different feel to a conference like this? I mean, we're in Gettysburg, um, of course, Hood's. Texas Brigade, fought here in Gettysburg. You're giving a tour later. Uh, I think we'll be walking through Devil's Den. And um, is, is there something different about this, this conference than other conferences that I'm sure you've participated in?
2: Right. So, I mean, academic historians, in many ways, um, we don't, we're not supposed to, at least, get emotionally involved about the people we write about, right? I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not rooting for anybody. I, I didn't root for the Irish Brigade any more than I rooted for the Texas Brigade. I I'm fascinated by conflict, by military conflict, what happens to those who wage it, what happens to their families, why do nations go to war. It's all very analytical to me. Um, When you come to the ground where the battle's fought, I don't, some people here, some people who are attending, you know, their great-great-grandfather was here. This is a very kind of a personal experience for them. So for me, when I come to this conference, I think the difference is you just, you have this heightened awareness of the cost of this war for these individuals. Um, you know, when I talk about, we're going to be, you know, hiking up um, Little Round Top, for example, and we're going to be looking out on the ground, kind of we'll end the tour tonight, looking out from Little Round Top, and thinking about, you know, Strong Vincent's decision to say, you need a brigade, it's my brigade, and I'll take the responsibility for it, and getting his guys up to Little Round Top, that really stops the Confederate advance and the Confederate ability to take that ground. Those kind of personal sacrifices, what that's going to cost the families at home, that's where it does kind of become this personal thing. Um, So I think for historians, no. I'm I'm never rooting for anybody. I don't tend to get emotionally involved. But it becomes a very... um, personal story for the individuals who fought here on each side and that's the difference I think this conference offers
0: well and, and I think that's the difference and the tremendous value in your book I mean when when somebody is killed in battle it's not just enough it just it just doesn't affect the soldiers he's fighting alongside of you, you see you see the woman back in Texas his wife who now has to run a grist mill on her own right you know who has to raise hundreds uh, heads of cattle on, on her own yeah. so yeah. Uh, I think it is um uh, it, it is the, uh, it's the future of Civil War history where you're you're, um, you're on a battlefield and simultaneously back in Galvin, Galveston, Texas. Right. Um, um, with that, Susanna, I want to thank you very much for, for doing this. I know it's a busy weekend, uh, and I look forward to going on the tour later up Little Round Top. Uh, please uh, buy uh, Susanna Ural's book, uh, Hood's Texas Brigade, Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit, And uh, I want to thank Gettysburg College and the Civil War Institute for putting on such a great conference and letting me set up. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Enjoyed it.